I'm Kate Daniels. Daniel Kleinman is a professor of sociology at Boston University, but was a senior dean of the graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison when he co-authored Vanishing Bees, Science, Politics, and Honeybee Health. We might have a slight idea of the value of bees in our life and to our whole ecosystem. We might also have a slight idea that the bee population is under many stresses and the population is declining. This morning, we'll get to expand our awareness and potentially be enlisted in some kind of activity to protect and improve the health of our bees and thus our own life and health. Let's meet Daniel Kleinman to learn more. Daniel Kleinman, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I feel that this is such a critically important conversation that we are having, certainly talking about what you cover in the book Vanishing Bees, Science, Politics, and Honeybee Health. Just thinking of honeybees, we know that these are critical to our life, to our health, not just individually, but of course the whole planet. And yet the fact that uh, there's this kind of controversy that we realize goes on as we read about the information in Vanishing Bees uh, really strikes me as kind of crazy, actually. Well, you know, it's it's weird. I, I mean, I guess before I started this project, I never thought much about honeybees. And I think still today, most people don't recognize that it's not just sort of the honeybees that fly around in our yard and pollinate are flowers that are important, but in fact, there's a whole business organized around honeybees. Commercial beekeepers, yes, they produce some honey, but mostly what they're doing is taking their bees to farms across the United States to help pollinate crops, and crops, you know, sort of 90 crops, um, a huge amount of the uh, food that we eat is enhanced by the pollination services provided by commercially provided honeybees, uh, amounting to something like $17 billion. So on the one hand, this is a big deal in terms of what it does to our sort of food economy and what we eat and to the economy more broadly. But there's also a way in which the problems that honeybees are facing, that they're dying in such large numbers, is a kind of indicator to us that something really is wrong here that we should take seriously and think about how to respond to and remedy. And certainly uh, we, in this short amount of time, can't cover enough of the details. So really directing listeners to the book Vanishing Bees is so critical in this instance. But we're going to try and touch on some of the key components in terms of what is going on. And one of the things that probably we, just as the general population, don't realize is one of the things that is killing off the bee population is, well, I just learned this term through your book, CCD, colony collapse disorder. Right. So colony collapse disorder is a set of symptoms more than anything else. And honeybees have always died in the period between the sort of end of the farming season and through the winter but there's been a kind of new normal where larger numbers of bees, maybe as many as 60%, are dying with some regularity. And the, the symptoms that are unusual is that in the past, beekeepers would find dead bees. They'd find them near their hives, in their hives. And now they find, or often in the case of CCD, they find the hives are empty, that there are no bees nearby. They don't know where the bees have gone. Um, 
there is honey in the hive, there is pollen in the hive, and no sort of insect or animal seeking the sort of bounty in the hive has, has gone to steal from there, suggesting that something is deeply wrong. And this is still a continuing mystery, to, for lack of any other word. We still don't know what has happened to the bees. Right. I think that's exactly right. Well, we don't know where the bees have gone, for certain. I think that there's a growing consensus that a complicated set of interacting factors, everything from uh, insecticides to mites to viruses, um, are interacting to harm these bees, potentially weakening them, um, resulting in their vulnerability, and then ultimately perhaps them dying. But exactly sort of what the causal pathway is that's leading to the demise of the honeybees, that's, that still remains, well, at least there's still not agreement on what on how that works exactly. And that's where these different, uh, what we call them, interest groups come into play, where we have the owners who certainly have a pretty sound or a really grounded theory on this, but then you have some of the scientists, the various kinds of scientists involved, and then you get government agencies involved as well, right? Right. So what our book really looks at is how people, how different groups gain knowledge about this problem and what they think of as adequate knowledge about the problem. And so um, our book is broken up into chapters. We look at each of the key stakeholders in the controversy, including commercial beekeepers and entomologists for universities and regulators and growers. Um, and yeah, they, they all have, have different perspectives. I think in the very simplest terms, uh, beekeepers are divided. They don't all have the same perspective, but the ones that we found the most interesting were a group of beekeepers who... Um, sort of do sort of in-the-field in experiments where they put hives in one place and then another place and monitor what happens to their hives. And they were among the earliest uh, uh, people involved in this controversy to point to neonicotinoid systemic insecticides as contributing uh, to the, to the um, problem faced by honeybees. But they are also among the people who believe that there are a set of interacting factors that are affecting honeybees. Um, often they're not listened to because, uh, you know, the government, uh, the producer of these systemic insecticides, Bayer Corporation, thinks they're not doing science, um, despite the fact that they're quite systematic in doing it. Um, and while many of the scientists at universities who are looking at this problem acknowledge, at least at this stage, that there are a set of complicating interacting factors affecting uh, what's happening to the bees, they tend to study um, the problem one variable, one factor at a time. And if the problem is the result of interacting factors, you're not going to understand it that way. They're looking for very clean results, um, unambiguous results, whereas the beekeepers would be comfortable making a policy decision on slightly uncertain uh, Results, but results, uh, but at, but leading to actions that would protect their honeybees, and uh, I mean I could go on for a good long time, but regulators tend also to look for those decisive results. Um, so, for example, if these neonicotinoids are contributing to the problem, but the evidence is ambiguous, the 
the many of the beekeepers would like to get those off the market or regulate them more sharply, more uh, decisively, whereas um, Bayer would say, you know, look, until you have unambiguous evidence, don't take this chemical off the market. And growers often feel they need the chemical as a matter of insurance, and most scientists are not willing to say that there is a decisive, unambiguous role uh, of these insecticides in affecting the honeybees. So it's such a challenge having these various stakeholders really, it feels to me like they're butting heads. How do we get them to cooperate? Because essentially the grower needs to have the honeybee growers to help pollinate their crops in order to have success. Yet if what using the chemicals is going to be killing off the bees uh, and it seems that there has been an, enough uh, work done by the keepers to, to really look at this analysis, or many of them have looked at it really quite strictly, wouldn't you say? Well, so, I mean, so the, the first part of the question that you asked was, how do, how do we resolve the problem? How do we get the different parties together? And I would say on, a, on an individual basis, there are growers who are working with the beekeepers that they contract with to uh, not expose the honeybees to the chemicals, to um, make sure that there's diverse forage for the uh, honeybees to consume uh, while they're pollinating. Um, but as you also pointed out, I mean, you know, most growers are a little bit risk averse. And if they think they can use this uh, systemic insecticide as an insurance policy against other in insects, they might be interested in, in using it. One of the things that we found um, at the end of the book, we talk about a, a kind of initiative that we undertook where we brought together key stakeholders from each of these different groups um, minus uh, the insecticide companies and essentially got them to engage in conversation. And uh, we chose people we thought would be open-minded from each of the different groups. And what we found was, over time, they did come to understand one another. Um, and uh, there certainly was the possibility of uh, a resolution that they could all conceivably buy into. In our case, we were getting them together to collectively design a set of experiments to, to look at the situation. Um, and they did that quite effectively. So isn't that quite interesting? If we could set, sit down at the table together and have a conversation and listen to each other through disagreements, that there is a way to come to consensus. Well, uh, you know, my utopian view is that that is almost always the case, that, you know, it's easy to disagree and shout and ignore um, people who take different positions than you do when you're far from them. But when you sit down at the table with them and you do it repeatedly, I think people grow to trust one another and appreciate and respect the knowledge that they have. So among the things that, that were very interesting when we brought these groups of people together was that at the outset, the scientists did a lot of talking and the beekeepers listened and the beekeepers, I probably thought, hey, these are the people that know what they're talking about. But progressively, the beekeepers were emboldened and would, you know, they'd be, everybody would be looking at a graph 
and trying to look at, you know, they would be looking at the trend line and the beekeepers would be looking at the outliers and trying to explain them. And the scientists were really amazed by that. And I think, again, over time, each, each group had insights that the other couldn't possibly have had on her or his own. And again, that leads toward what you were mentioning as your utopian ideal. If we can listen to each other, we can learn so much more. Right. I think that's, that's absolutely that, true. And yet you chose not to have present uh, the chemical, the agricultural chemical companies. You know, that's a really uh, 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 an important point. I mean, I am not, to be honest, th- this far away from having done this work. I'm not 100% sure how what, how we were led to that conclusion. Um, but in all likelihood, it was the belief that they, you know, that we were looking in particular at these systemic insecticides, and they, of all the different groups, had the deepest investment in not moving away from them. And and it feels that way through the book that uh, they perhaps are the least flexible. That uh, yes, there's a certainly that financial component, and I guess that's the part that is so challenging in thinking through this. If the chemicals really can be shown to be having this adverse effect on the honeybees, who are important to our food system, and which feeds all of us, you know, those chemical uh, company giants as well. So, you know, the fact that they don't want to have open eyes and open ears as they come to a table is uh, really perplexing. Well, again, I mean, you know, without wanting to cast dispersions on uh, Bayer, I mean, it's a publicly traded company. It's responsible to its stakeholders and, um, Probably the people who work there believe in their product, and you know, to 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 give them their due, the the results are ambiguous. So what what they do is they simply adhere to a, a traditional line of what counts as knowledge. We're not doing anything here until we have unambiguous uh, uh, experimental research results, field research in this case. And because there isn't unambiguous uh, findings, they're able to say, hey, look, there's unambiguous findings. Let's, let's not take this important um, agricultural tool off the market. And yet, is it possible to really get unambiguous? Because we're talking about nature and things shift and bees part of that nature, how, uh, you know, just like a human body, everyone reacts to things differently. Uh, are they really going to come to a place where it's totally unambiguous? No, absolutely not. So that's, I think that's the point, is, is when, we're, when we are looking in a complex world at how we make knowledge and what kinds of knowledge we use, when we have something less than uh, unambiguous data, unambiguous findings, when and how do we take action? And um, I think it's been widely accepted in reg- regulatory circles in the United States in recent years that we have to have unambiguous findings before we take action. But if you think about most of the problems that we face, a sustainable agricultural system, uh, climate change, these are all uh, very difficult and challenging um, problems that that are 
involve a complicated set of interacting factors and no kind of direct or or the direct causal relations are not the heart of the matter and so the question is when do you take uh when do you take action and it seems to us as if when you are faced with an important threat a threat that can say in this case decisively affect agriculture in the United States or though in the case of the planet, uh, disrupt uh, our, our climate system, you should err on the side of caution. Um, and up, up to date, in the case of honeybees, we have not erred on the side of caution. And certainly this isn't the only area of our lives where this kind of controversy goes on, where it seems the economy has a, a a bigger fist, if you will, in in terms of driving things. But if that big fist is going to then crash these other things, and there's really essentially nothing to to live with and work with, uh, where do we end up? Right. No, I think that's a that's a fair point. I think the other thing, the other way of thinking about this is: Are we looking at the short term or are we looking at the long term? So, uh, you know, in the case of climate change, a lot of sort of political conservatives who would not deny the presence of climate change and maybe not even the factors that contribute to it are worried that taking uh, action uh, quickly will have an adverse effect on the economy. And that would also be the case in the agricultural system. But in the long run, we won't have a climate that's worth living in if we don't take action. And similarly, uh, I, without being too alarmist, I would suggest that we don't have a sustainable agricultural system. So we need to be thinking long term about what kinds of strategies can position us to have such a system. Exactly. And that's where vanishing bees, science, politics, and honeybee health really illuminates the the problem for us. And I think, again, here's a, a time when we all have the obligation, really, to become informed and educated and be part of looking for the solution so that, um, you know, our voices, I think that a, a greater swell of voices will potentially ha- make a difference. I would love to see that. So as we again look at the challenges, um, you had mentioned Bayer. It's it's a huge company that is in the chemical business. There's evidently uh, talk then of it merging with Monsanto. Is that right? Yeah. I yes. I think that's right. I I to, I'll be honest. I I know I've heard that, but I have not been following this very closely. Okay, so we can table that, but just even the sense that uh, there has been that discussion, it feels as though that fist that I mentioned could get ever larger. Yeah, and and you know Monsanto has been a, a, a central player in genetically modified crops, and in particular genetically modified crops that are engineered to be um, resistant to herbicides, so that you could spray their herbicides to kill the uh, uh, weeds surrounding the plants, and you wouldn't kill the plants. Um, and while there may be um, valuable room for genetically modified crops, 
it may be that that kind of modification is not the, is not the most productive, most sustainable way to go. Um, so you have two two companies who are not necessarily uh, looking most effectively uh, towards sustainable agriculture uniting, and um, that would concern me. So again, all the more reason to become involved, informed, educated, Vanishing Bees is the book that is freshly out and available, isn't it, at, through all of our favorite book sources? Yes. I mean, so it's published by Rutgers University Press. Of course, it's available on at Amazon.com. But uh, if people are interested in reading it, and I uh, would immodestly say that it's a readable uh, book, not filled with a lot of jargon um, and not terribly long. In any case, if you're interested in reading it, you should go to your local bookseller and ask them to uh, get it for you. And I'm sure they'd be happy to do so. And that is a very sustainable way of looking at our world, too, is uh, supporting our local booksellers. So that's really great, Daniel. In the book, too, then we realize how this is a worldwide problem. This is not something that is just uh, that is contained for many reasons. That's nature. It it just goes worldwide, right, universally. So there was this situation that is really such an interesting one that went on in France that's called Mad Bee Disease? Right. So the it was not the same collection of symptoms, but their honeybees were dying, um, and uh, there was similar worry about the systemic insecticides, and ultimately uh, the government uh, restricted use of those insecticides. Um, the explanation for that is multifaceted. Why did they take them off the market in uh, France and not in the United States? Um, but a, a couple of things are, are worth noting. One of them is the way in which they, the kinds of experiments that counted in the two cases were different. So um, laboratory experiments were used to think through uh, the dangers of these chemicals in France, whereas field experiments are the established uh, way to proceed in the United States, and the latter produced more ambiguous results or did produce more ambiguous results. And the other thing is that um, honeybee uh, uh, keepers, producers uh, in France were more politically organized than those in the United States. And so that proved to be beneficial there do you think that that's something that has to happen here, or can we kind of go more at uh, the grassroots and having more of communities and we the people uh, being involved? Well, I mean, I, I, I certainly think as long as there is some evidence of the potential harm that these insecticides might cause to honeybees that we should uh, – minimally regulate, sharply regulate their use. But I think also this case really just points to um, an unsustainable agricultural system. So one of the things that I learned uh, in this project, which every commercial beekeeper knows, is that beekeepers are, are bees, honeybees, are driven in their hives on uh, large trucks across the United States. And um, you know, there's a lot of ways of thinking about this, but among them is that that 
transport from field to field to field, moving from the uh, almond uh, orchards in California to the blueberry fields in Maine across the season stresses the honeybees. So, you know, and that might be a good metaphor that we are putting an incredible amount of stress on our agricultural system and we have to find ways um, that will work for us in the long run. Uh, so that does give us a, a, a different perspective is to think more in terms of local agriculture, um, we talk about, you know, buy locally. So, you know, thinking about the hives being transported across the country, I was, you know, it, you mentioned the story in the book about the uh, beekeeper from Texas going from that area to California. That seems reasonable, but going coast to coast, I think when we think of ourselves flying coast to coast, that puts a stress on our system. Uh, equally so, it would seem it would affect the bees. Yeah, I mean, I, I so I don't know exactly how much research there's been done on the stress of that transportation on honeybees. But I guess that I would say it's not clear to me exactly how much transportation is okay and, how, you know, after which point the honeybees are harmed. Um, but I think that it, it, is, it is an indication of how we have this complex, industrially-oriented agriculture, and it may be that we can't get completely away from that, but we need to think carefully about the ways in which we are doing things and which kinds of things that we're doing are the most unsustainable. And I think probably think about both strategies and policies that will encourage more sustainable practices. Truly, yes. In terms of then the health of the honeybee, uh, I understand that the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service proposed that the rusty-patched bumblebee be listed as an endangered species. Does that right, right. In indicate that, you know, that could be a more widespread problem? Yeah, I mean, so you know, our our crops and the plants all around us are not just pollinated by honeybees, but um, lots of other insects and and uh, um, animals, and you know, many of them are in danger, and they're in danger because they're exposed to pollution, because they're exposed to less diverse forage, um, and and so forth. And um, yes, I mean, I think that that bumblebees. Um, the threat to that bumblebee should also be a wake-up call to us. So we realize that there is really such a critical issue going on. It's it's complex. I think that's uh, such a key word here. It is complex. It's it is the honeybee, but it is also nature in general. We need to be looking at what is going on we need to find some balance in everything that is part of our life and realize what is the big picture. You mentioned that. Are, are they looking at the short term or the long term? We all need to be looking at that. Isn't that so? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, our book offers a number of lessons, and that is certainly one of them. We need to think about the big picture. We need to think about sustainability. Um, I think that uh, a second lesson is thinking about well, what counts as knowledge and why? When a beekeeper does research, why is that not considered knowledge? Um, a third issue is how we 
obtain knowledge about complex problems and what counts as adequate knowledge. So, yeah. All of that. So it's really stimulating, offers important questions for us to look at and apply in our lives. And I think, uh, as we see all around us, this is a time for us to take action and not just leave it to someone else. Uh, I think we're all individually called to be part of the solution, to look at the big picture. And certainly, Vanishing Bees, while it focuses on bees, I think presents us with that opportunity to really look at the complexities. And it's really a huge issue that's going on. And I really appreciate, Daniel Kleinman, that you and your co-author have done this work and given us this opportunity to take part in our lives, in our world. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this issue and the broader implications. I really appreciate it. And again, I appreciate you and the work that you're doing.